Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is the Professor, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello, Edward. Hello, everyone. Tonight's episode, we are going to be looking at the latest offering from Sion Sono, The Forest of Love, which is uh, just hit Netflix on Friday as one of uh, part of an exclusive deal he has with them to produce a film as well as a forthcoming series as well as that we're also going to be looking at what we've been watching we've also got some uh, listener mail as well as uh, Stephen's going to be answering your question on our previous episode uh, The Terrorizers uh, which is still available as always uh, through both our podcast feeds as well as our blog which is asiansimmerfilmclub.wordpress.com uh, but Stephen I mean obviously it's a busy week all around we're in the midst of the 31 days of horror both me and yourself are Coming in the depths of that, and over on the blog and uh, on our Instagram feed and Facebook, we're currently running the 31 Days of Asian Horror or Asian Shocktober, as it's also being known on the uh, old hashtags. So, I mean, how is your movie watching going at the moment? Well, I've got to be honest with you, with real life in the way, and, um, and let's face it, an enhanced. Um program of Asian Cinema Film Club that we're putting on. I've been finding it quite hard, but I do love a horror movie, so I've been trying my best to fit one in every day, and I've got a day, I guess spoilers of what day we're recording this, on day 13, (laughs) Um, and I've I've managed it so far, although I've only picked, I think, one or two Asian films in that that, um, Mm -hmm. collection. I've been doing a mix of sort of old staples and rewatches and um brand new things which have been sitting on the to watch pile and october has demanded it's happened how about yourself it's going well at the moment as like yourself i'm trying to mix it up so it's not just been the asian cinema in there we've had some a lot of stuff that like yourself i've just been trying to get off the watch pile stuff that for years i've been saying yeah i totally watched that and just never watching it instead of going off and being distracted by something else so it's good to cross off a lot of stuff off the list i mean certainly in terms of the western cinema it's been able to watch things such as like don't go in the house uh which i don't know for years i've been wanting to see and also revisit like classics such as richard stanley's hardware and i have to say that i'm very just my co-host of movies and tim kim who uh got to see the color of space at the uh, film festival she's uh currently at at the moment so thank you kim for inviting us to that one <laughs> it's exciting around and I have to say that while we're obviously compiling the 31 days of Asian horror it sort of dawned on me this last couple of days just how different the landscape of Asian sim has gone in terms of what's been released now compared to when we look back to like you know the early 2000s and the films which were getting the releases then and back then I mean we were uninundated with horror it was sort of like a new golden age of horror. Like when we talk about the 80s in the horror and it was like a slasher week, it seemed like there was a new Asian horror film a week uh, back in that sort of golden period. And now when I was like trying to think of new Asian horror movies that come out, I was just really sort of struggling to come up with those sort of titles. And I wasn't sure whether it's just the fact that it's not so obvious that we haven't got so much of the J-horror and sort of long-haired ghost ladies and now it's sort of like a lot more subtle and sort of like looking at uh sort of more serial killer first such as like i saw the devil and memories of murder so i think a bit of it is so that that j horror and the j and j horror i guess means japan but we got quite a lot of korean stuff through in that period yeah and i think what it might be is that a lot of the distributors have got their favorites 
have got their favourite directors, the ones that they know they can probably sell a few hundred copies of. And some of those directors don't do horror movies anymore <laughs> or um or their output has changed you know i mean you know we'll talk about you know we're the same we talk about mikey and sono and kurosawa and people like that and they were making edgy sometimes horror films back then and maybe now quite often they've become a bit more mainstream or exploring different genres and I think what it is it's quite hard for some of these companies to take a punt on something that's a little more out there I mean horror is always a good good thing to go for because it's got a sort of a built-in audience wherever it comes from but I, you're right it used to be I mean we had whole we had whole DVD labels dedicated to it and for a couple of years any, any anything with a long-haired ghost girl was going to get a release and now <laughs> it's got to be extremely special and yeah there's the three or four directors everything or most stuff comes across but that 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 level of experimentation seeing what sticks we don't see so much and I think some of that might even be in those markets as well so in Japanese cinema there really has been a fall off in that independent uh, extreme filmmaking and in Korea, everything becomes more and more homogenised, and then we get those those old films, you know, that we've we've looked at things like The Wailing and stuff like that, which are very much the exception rather than the norm. It's something I, I kind of miss because it wasn't just sort of ghost stories that were getting picked up. It seemed that as soon as we had those initial sort of films sort of hit, and we've talked about this time and time again, like the three sort of key films which led that that uh, Asian Revolution. And that would be like The Ring, Battle Royale, and Audition. And it, in its sort of wake, it seemed that like anything remotely horror-related was getting brought across. So you would have highbrow fairs, such as like The Ring and The Eye, and then you would have sort of like lowbrow fairs, such as like Evil Dead Trap and Junk being brought across. And we don't seem to have that sort of wide variety anymore. It just seem, as you said, it just seems to be the fact that it's very sort of selective and certain directors which will get... The releases sort of are put across, and unfortunately, the, we're in a time where some of these directors aren't putting out the sort of output that they used to, or we've sort of caught up on their back catalogue, which I think is probably more certainly the case when we like look at the likes of Sion Sono and like Park Chan Wook, and we now just have to like wait like everyone else over in their in their native countries for them to do their latest project. And, and that will so. absolutely be part of it. And of course, also remember, you you know that you you. We were also picking up things from maybe the decade before from places like Hong Kong, which just don't have that anymore. It just doesn't exist. That the horror movies that come out from there are now comedy horror at best, or, or, or with a big massive wink going on. There's the occasional one, <laughs> you know. There's the occasional one. Juno Max output um, like Rigor Mortis. Uh, Nick Chung put one had a couple of films which had a horror theme, but I don't I don't think they do very well. And they have no market in China. In mainland China, don't you not you don't have ghost stories. You don't have horror movies in the same way. And if you do, the twist is always that a person did it. Um, so I just I just don't think um, I just don't think it's there. So so what what we get is a is a, a sliding scale of stuff coming out of Japan, and a, a homogenized stuff coming out of Korea. Occasionally, we get something like One Cut of the Dead. But again, that's that's a comedy horror, and it's actually a horror only in name, and it's actually more about something else completely. Um, yeah, so it's, mm. it's 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 slim pickings, and and, and just there's, there's there's occasional 
stuff comes out like we've talked before like the whaling like train from basan things like that but there that's one or two a year and it used to be felt like one or two a month definitely it's and I, I kept keep thinking that you know like with the whaling and train from basan and just that these releases like spark this new revival and it's certainly because these these movies come over and they feel so fresh. I mean, obviously the whaling didn't I didn't play as well for myself as it seemingly did for everyone else. And we can you can certainly go back on our episode and from last Halloween and and listen to that one, see what our thoughts were on the whaling. But certainly when you look at like Train to a Sun and these ideas feel so like such fresh takes on old ideas, such as like Train to a Sun. I mean, the zombie genre is pretty well. At this point, it's pretty been run into the ground, and then yet Train to comes out and it feels like a completely fresh shake. It was like when you saw Wreck for the first time, and it was like, "Wow, this is what we needed just to, you know, shake things up a bit." Uh, the same way that when Night, when uh, Return of the Living Dead gave us running zombies, it was just these little tweaks that just keep things fresh. And while Hollywood's happy to just keep running things into the ground, I mean, you look at the current state of The Walking Dead and the people who watch it, it's sort of like. It sounds like you're in an abusive relationship when they talk about it. It's all like, oh, it was it was good, and then nothing happened for four episodes, and then something was good, and then nothing happened for another seven. So, um, I think we need we need another shaker. We need some more a second coming of Asian horror. Um, I don't know in what sort of context or whether it's just like a real sort of general sort of just rush of of um, of different genres of horror being uh, tapped into rather than one specific one because obviously when we had the initial j-horror boom it was a lot of ghost stories and then it sort of paid the way for like the splatter and things like you know meatball machine and tokyo gore police as we sort of like went really off the deep end as labels just couldn't import stuff quick enough it seemed and then suddenly the bubble burst and where we lost a good few labels such as you know like tartan which was we've talked numerous times before about how much of a crushing bro when the asia extreme label went under so I think we just uh, we need more labels like uh, Terracotta and Arrow because I think they're sort of the main ones at the moment who are sort of bringing stuff across. Would you I say? I mean, yeah, you'll still get our Masters of Cinema, um, Eureka. Um, we'll we'll yes. we'll put stuff out. I mean, my go-to brand is is Arrow tends to be, or the things under like you say under the Terracotta brand things like Third Window, um, but Arrow are really yeah Arrow are definitely always looking to the past um if they are if they do put something out it's because they've got something new so you know which is a good thing you know they've got something new to advertise by by doing something with the art by bringing some old things out um but uh, yeah eureka master cinema who tend to redo stuff which which has been out on criterion but again it's i very rarely find something new new I might find an older film that hasn't been on Blu-ray before, or I might find a, a previous film from a director who's had a big hit. But I'm, I, other than Third Window, who, who actually do make an effort, or did make an effort, to showcase new directors as well, um, I don't see that from those other brands. It's It's safe. Not to obviously give the impression everything's sort of doom and gloom on the old Asian cinema release front. I have to say, we did get the screener for a film which reminded me even as you know an avid movie watcher the joy of being surprised by something again and uh that was a screen of a violence voyager which uh will be hitting your streaming services on the 21st i believe um but uh if you've 
didn't uh, see it over on our blog or our Facebook page. The film itself is from a Japanese animator called uh, Yuji Cha. Uh, I apologise again already if we butchered the hell that's uh, that name. But um, this is his follow-up to his 2013 debut film Burning Buddha Man. And it uh, once again sees him return with his trademarked Gekimation, which is basically where he uses paper dolls and combines them with practical elements, you know, such as like water and slime and all in all it makes for like a really memorable experience because you're not watching sort of one thing or another it's got that sort of tangible elements to it and the sort of and very unusual animated style that we haven't really seen even when you think back to like South Park they were still doing you know moving the paper models taking a photo and then moving them and taking a photo and this one it feels more like they could actually be being manipulated live it's a really interesting effect but the film itself it follows two boys an american called bobby and his best friend akun who set out for the nearby mountains to they plan to build a secret base and along the way they stumble across a amusement park called violence voyager and here they're basically offered the chance to run around and shoot water pistols at cutouts of robot warriors and the pitch they're sold for this amusement park is I'm sure that the person who put it together is the same person who pitches movies to the sci-fi channel and what movies they're going to be getting because it's a very disappointing experience they find but you know they enjoy it all the same and when they come out they find that the bridge they crossed has mysteriously disappeared and that the theme park is actually a front for the owner Kyoke and his mysterious engineering his bioengineering experiments as the boys soon find out um this is a film which really sort of taps into a wide range of influences and we sort of when we think of bio horror we're sort of thinking of like Tetsuo and the Iron Man sort of old school anime like Geno Cyber and otherwise it's got this sort of like uncanny valley tone of like sort of like very reminiscent to David Lynch's Eraserhead or maybe like even more sort of obscure Dave Boffrick's Secret Adventures of Tom Thumb so I mean Stephen did you get a chance to have a look at this before we I, I didn't or? get to watch it in full I, I skim watched it um, okay. so I can't comment on the story but visually it's absolutely fascinating um, like you say it's it's like live paper puppetry isn't it? Yes. The way I would describe it again not having read the story but just, just or, or watch the story but just sort of watching bits of it and, and being wondering how I was ever going to get into the mindset to watch it I would consider it a cross between sort of the the, the, the surrealist animation work of someone like um, Jan Schwenkmeyer, the the Czech, the Czech filmmaker, and um, Terry Gilliam's work that he used to back in the seventies with um, Monty Python's Flying Circus. Um, that, that's that's the only way I can describe it. Um, it like like you said, the, the the South Park feel, but South Park obviously is really computer animated, just made to look like paper cutouts. This yeah. is, this seems to be just sort of done real time. I don't know if it is or it isn't, but that's just that's just the feel I got from it. So I will be going to dive to have a look in it, but um, I I'm pretty sure you've never seen anything in this style before. At a feature length before, for sure. Certainly when I draw the comparison to South Park, I'm really talking sort of like the early shorts, such as um, Santa vs. Jesus, or like that first season where it was sort of like, it was just like paper things. And obviously now they do, they speed up the process because of their turnaround time, they use, their C, use computer graphics to make it look like something that's been cut out. And I have to like reassure you at least that um, if you 
watch the original Japanese trailer for it, it looks really incoherent and it's going to be like really out there and just weirdness thrown at the screen for like an hour and a half. And what's what surprised me the most about this film is it's surprisingly coherent. Like it, the story is weird, but you can follow it and it takes some unusual paths. But the whole time you're able to follow it and it almost feels like by the end of it that uh, he's introducing like a new superhero and that you're going to be following one of a series of equally bizarre adventures. So it's definitely one I would check out. If uh, you if you come so across your streaming services, definitely check it out. Cause it's, as you said, it's quite unlike anything you've seen before. And I mean, I mean, this is being put out through Dark Coast Films. And I when it came through, we were sort of like, wow, that's kind of bizarre. And we thought, I personally thought, was like, how am I going to review this? But watching the film i mean it was just completely drawn into this world it's insane and has some really bizarre ideas but if you're like a fan of like the old school anime and sort of like the more sort of like gooey sort of stuff so like going to guys uh properties and things such as like devil man and violence jack and uh legend of the overfiend just these sort of like really sort of gooey demon uh sort of anime then you'll probably really get a kick out of this but it's just a really interesting film and probably one that uh, that you want to pair up with with Fantastic Planet if you've got access to that. Uh, if we were if we were more world cinema based, then we would certainly discuss Fantastic Planet more. But I don't know maybe you can maybe one for yourself there over and uh, Green yeah, Ramblers maybe it's too. one for me to maybe to pick up the baton on that one, isn't it? Talking of obviously weird cinema, obviously on the last episode we talked about Edward Yang's The Terrorizers, a film which I couldn't make head or tail of, yet Stephen, how can we put this, he he openly endorses <laughs> and cannot talk more highly of it because apparently he sees something in those movies uh, that uh, I don't, and apparently quite a few of you out there on the uh, social media platforms really enjoyed that one as well, so um, we obviously got asked I'm just going to read the uh, comment that we got here. Uh, this is from Rashmi. And uh, she said, uh, Kudos on finding a Yang film under four hours long. Seriously, though, Yi Yi is my favorite Yang film. Any hold, though, on the way? City of Sadness is great, featuring Tony Lung as a mute. Well, I've not seen that, and I'm sure Stephen has because you already posted a response. But, I mean, any sort of response to that, Stephen, at all? That you yeah, I mean, as I responded to, this is on our Facebook page. Um, I was really, I was really keen to get you watching some some of this sort of this new wave Taiwanese cinema I had I had a feeling yeah. it wouldn't resonate with you but that's cool you know this this is this is what the vast majority of the audience are thinking how does he not like hard-boiled and things like that yes yeah, so you know <coughs> it, it goes swings, full circle roundabouts, you know um and Yang I thought was possibly the the, the, the easiest one for you to I don't want to say understand because that sounds terrible. That sounds terribly elitist of me. You thought it'd be most accessible. accessible. Exactly the words after the problem is most of Yang's films are like um, Rashmi says about four hours long. So I picked the Terrorizers because it was fairly <laughs> short. Um, yeah, Yee Yee's great film. Um, Brighter Summer's Day is probably my favourite. When she talks about who, I assume she means oh crikey, who Xiao Shen, and I talked to, to talk about that in the last episode and the recommendations yeah i'd love to to put you through <laughs> city of sadness if nothing else at least you'd um recognize tony lung as a as a character although he he can't talk in it and it would give me lots of chance to talk about the um 
the white terror period of uh, Taiwanese history and uh, and all that stuff. Um, but I think actually, if we were going to go anywhere, like I said before, I think Millennium Mambo, starring Chu Kui, would probably be the one I brought to the party. And also maybe his more recent effort, The Assassin, if nothing to um, have a completely different view of a wuxia film. <laughs> and uh, it would be very interesting to bounce our different experiences of those kind of films off each other through The Assassin. I actually think I'd really like, of all the directors, I think um, the Ming Liang would be the guy that I'd like to introduce you more to, um, although they are a bit weird because there's not much dialogue in them. They're very much in the visual, very much in the metaphor. Um, talked about Wayward Cloud last time. So yeah, if, if any of the audience do want me to bring more difficulty to Elwood's life, <laughs> get in touch and I will pick something else from that um, from that scene. I th- definitely think we need to talk more about Taiwanese cinema periods, um, whether it's New Wave or whether it's some of the older stuff like A Touch of Zen or something something mm. newer. It's quite a vibrant scene in Taiwan It's uh, due to its... Um, more open nature and more open society these days um it's very it's a good place if we want to go and have a look at some lgtp lgbgt whatever alphabet cinema um (laughs) far more than maybe some of the other zones so yeah give me give me support and i'll um i'll drag elwood kicking and screaming Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, The Assassin is certainly one on my list. I mean, I'm very interested to see how it compares to, obviously, The Ashes at the Time, which is already a way to reinvent the Wushu movie, and that was obviously from uh, Wong Kar Wai. I think, I think the thing about The Assassin is it's very oblique. <laughs> it's... I, I was a big... I was a big backer of it over on easternkicks.com. It split, it split yeah. the team down the middle. There were those people who thought it was potential bullcrap... Uh, pretentious bull crap and there were those of us who thought it was absolutely phenomenal and for me it, it was like watching a wuxia film through the through some gossamer curtains through the corner and you were just getting a glimpse of this film going on and you were only seeing one character it, it's it's something to be seen other people saw much more depth in it um but yes, it would make for a very interesting episode, but one where we probably have to talk about something else as well, because I could see you saying, <laughs> I fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, it often surprised me what divides people. I mean, I thought that when we obviously started on this journey with like Ghost in the Show, I thought that was like a surefire hit, and that it was just this well-regarded film, and then obviously you giving the report from the folks over at Eastern Kicks that, like, no, this, this didn't sit well with some people over there, and it's like, wow, that's... So surprising, and I mean, you obviously made these these threats about what you're going to show. And just remember, I've seen what the depths of DVD hell go to. <laughs> well, indeed, indeed, <laughs> and I don't want to see it as a threat. I want to see it as an education. Um, and and I'm so. very happy if you if you watch a film and you don't like it, and I think I'm sure it's the same for you. Mm. It's, it's 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 that we've both tried, and um, more often than not, our tastes are fairly well aligned. But the Venn diagram circles do sometimes not connect and uh usually it's when i pick a film though it seems <laughs> i think i think your three least favorite films have all been those that i've chosen oh no tales of surprisingly fast swim was one of mine true but so. i really really wanted to watch it <laughs> so and but yeah i think we 
I mean, this is the whole point of this 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 show. This whole project is just about this out there providing introductions, not only just for people listening to the show, but also to ourselves. I mean, it's all about discovering new things, and I think this is the the good thing is to constantly have a way to push yourself. Sometimes you don't need to be like taking something. Sometimes you need to be pushed yeah, into something and, and, to experience and, and, and it. And for me, so. it's very important that we do understand the world of Asian cinema is not just about Sammo Hung and Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee and long-haired ghost girls and all those things which we will talk about and we will enjoy immensely and, and bullet ballet and whatever, all that stuff. It's about all the other types of films as well. So like when we talked about um, the classic with Zoe, yeah, a, a, a Korean melodrama. Well, that was a surprise because actually I think you both kind of enjoyed it or certainly didn't hate it. Oh, definitely. Um, so the uh, the classic as well was was a very big surprise. I think already. Yeah. So, so so and you introduce people to things, and I'd rather you said you didn't like it than pretended you did. So, yay, yay us. <laughs> cool. Anything else that you've watched? Anyone discuss? Um, I'm just trying to think. Is there anything Asian wise? There is a film I want to talk about, but I want to bring it back to a further viewing after tonight's film. So. <laughs> okay, that's fine. That's fine. Um, well, it's uh, time now for our feature viewing, and uh, tonight we're going to be discussing *The Forest of Love*, a Japanese crime film with certainly with its horror elements, uh, directed by Sion Sono and released exclusively for Netflix, who are really doing their bit not only for foreign cinema and anime, but just getting directors and seemingly just giving them a blank check to just do what the hell they want. Certainly we've got Martin Scorsese coming up with The Irishman and we've uh, seen it with Roma as well and uh, now we'll see on Sonna's turn with The Forest of Love. A film which I think a week before it was due to come out we had no brief on what it was going to be about. We had no information whatsoever and uh, it certainly created this when we knew it was coming out it created this sort of fast turnaround in production for ourselves where while we've obviously just put one episode out it was all like well we really want to talk about forest of love so this is why you're getting the two episodes pretty close together so but Sion Sono is certainly one of the directors that we're always excited to see new projects from uh we've certainly discussed several of his films on the show already i mean we talked about axed this new film it's a film which uh, seems to incorporate in many ideas from his previous films and uh, we're certainly going to dive into the highlights in a few of those but certainly many f- ideas that we've seen in his previous films are sort of thrown into the mix here such as Japanese schoolgirls and young filmmakers um, and the film itself is really kind of a two-thread story as we've got this trio of young student filmmakers who are decided to make a film about this uh, guy who they suspect to be a suspected serial killer and at the same time we've got a schoolgirl romance uh, between these uh, two girls who are called Mitsuko and Teiko who have drifted apart um, in adult life and are now through the process of this filmmaking pro- uh, that is going on, sort of drawn back together, and in particular because Mitsuko may be dating this suspected serial killer that the three boys are so interested in. The film itself, it starts off as, as one thing and drifts off into completely 
different way as here we're given a film which is not only surprising in its plotting but uh, certainly in the what uh, Sonoma has chosen to include in his supposed plotting as certainly at times it does feel that he's just making it up as it goes along but this is a film which not only sort of taps into the current trend for serial killers but also seems in many ways to pay homage to the likes of Bam Bike's dog as our film crew become more involved with the serial killers plans but Stephen I mean this is obviously a film I know a lot of people were excited but it came out the same day as El Camino so I think there was really two sort of groups. There was like the Breaking Bad crowd who were like, yeah, El Camino, we're going to see the finale of the Breaking Bad story. And then there was folks like ourselves who were like, woo, Forest of Love, <laughs> see you on Sono. <laughs> so good day all round to be a Netflix subscriber. You had uh, two really strong choices there. And I have to say that this is not a film to watch at the gym, as I found out watching the first 30 minutes there. No, it's, um, oh, where to start? <laughs> Um, can I just start with it? It's very long, isn't it? <laughs> it's, two, it's two hours, 30 minutes. So, yeah, it's a bit but of a longer one. It's not one. just long. It felt and parts really dragged. And I I mean, I quite often watch movies in, in separate shifts, but I had to watch this one in separate shifts. I found, um, I found it quite a difficult watch, um, just in terms of time and, and, and then it's pacing. Um, but yay, new Sono film, and yay, on Netflix. And as you say, it does seem like Netflix have uh, decided to adopt a number of, um, just throw money at a number of directors, and Caron, as you say, and um, Scorsese, and I'm sure there's others that we can't think of. Um, Sono's a funny old choice, because um, if he's got any history of streaming, it's with Amazon. Because he, he did a TV show with that's them, right. didn't he? That's not... He did um, Tokyo Vampire he Hotel. Did. And previous to that, he's done a, TV, a Virgin Psychics TV show in in um, in Japan. So, yeah, the, the method of um, delivery is interesting. Um, it was also interesting what we've got to know, what you also got to know is he made this, um, started making this, two rather major life events happened to him. Um, at the back end of last year, um, he had his first child, and he also had a serious heart attack. And this is his sort of first work since that heart attack. So what I was kind of wondering if this would be a Sono in a reflective mood, in a uh, looking at mort- his mortality or something like that. And instead, I think what we got was a greatest hit screener. That's what it felt like to me. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> it was it was a film that was very long and pretty much every scene you could say ah that's just like suicide squad that's good what's called suicide suicide club and that's just like cold fish and that's just like and um yeah i i, I got i got to say mate i was a bit disappointed i don't want to say i was disappointed because there are moments in this film that I really enjoyed it. The where the disappointment for myself comes, and this might be skipping ahead slightly, but um, was the last half hour of this film. It really sort of became became tedious. But up until that point, there was always something sort of happening. There was some inventiveness, and I was enjoying being around the characters. In particular, I mean, obviously we got the loner Shin who uh, teams up with uh, these two filmmakers called Jay and Fukami. When they are first introduced, I thought that Jay and Fukami were going to rob Shin, 
because he's just basically there sitting there howling away on his acoustic guitar in the middle of the street just singing this song about Tokyo which I'm no songwriter but I'm sure that just shouting Tokyo 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 isn't really classified as a song it's certainly not much in the lyrical sense is it I don't think Ed Sheeran's <laughs> got anything to worry about there <laughs> Yeah, basically this they this trio they somehow Jane uh, Fukami have stumbled across this abandoned movie studio, and they decide that you know they're going to make a film and they're going to submit it to the local film festival and it's going to launch them as like incredible directors and it it's really bizarre and this is something that I'm sure was lost in translation but they they say it's like oh if you win the grand prize you get to be a director. And I'm thinking, well, surely by making the film, you're being a director. But... Yeah, I, 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 um, I did watch some of the film with the, um, with the dub. There's like an American dub on it with the English subtitles, and even they don't hook up quite correctly. So, so I didn't really realize there was a dub. I just no, it was there's a, sub a there's a dub as dubs. well, and and it doesn't. I mean, obviously, I don't speak Japanese, so I couldn't tell you how far off the original they were, but they're not exactly um working off the same script <laughs> although the dub is actually not bad actually um it, it, it just american accents coming out of japanese people and calling them with japanese names always makes me a little uh, it's whatever the oral equivalent of um uncanny valley is <laughs> it's it doesn't, yeah. doesn't i wish they'd just change their names to david and mark and then i'd have been i'll be all right with it then um Oh, they used to do that on the um, the Hong Kong Legends release. Like when you listen to Beast Cops, the dub, the dub, all the names are changed in the uh, in the dub uh, compared to when you watch, when you play the subtitles underneath, and they've all got like traditional um, sort of like. Yeah, names. we get we get that a lot in Hong Kong cinema, don't we? Some of the nicknames and things like that, which sound like aren't quite right, and they don't sound right when they're in a the dub. But I don't often watch dubs. No. But yeah, so yeah, there's this. Well, Maybe you want to just carry on. We'll uh, just introduce all the characters and how they get together. Okay, so these three, they form a surprising sort of friendship. And uh, they discover that Shin is also a virgin. So being the good friends they are, they decide they're going to go and get him laid. And they meet up with um, this this girl called uh, Mitsuko, who's kind of... Uh, she's meant to be a shut-in isn't she a hikamori um so she doesn't leave the house um she doesn't wash her hair you know it looks really dirty and stuff like that and some reason yeah. some reason and, uh... their mate thinks that would be a good person for Shin to lose his virginity with it doesn't, well, doesn't is... ever really doesn't really stack up <laughs> Yeah, I mean, having some mostly fragile person who's also a version to um, they're, they're going to um, go and hook it up. And I mean, they're introduced through uh, by Takeo, who we're shown in flashback is sort of like this this good girl, uh, school girl, and then in adult life she's like descending to like this like punk look. She's uh, got a real sort of hard edge to her, but she's uh, introduced them to uh, Mitsuko, and Mitsuko is really just. As you said, she's a shut-in. She's got sort of like wealthy but abusive parents who sort of like just just continually sort of uh, be down. They at the same time, her father's trying to get her married off to all these uh, these suitable heirs, uh, but she's sort of like having nothing of it at all. Oh, I mean, and it's, I can't believe many people are going to be interested. In her. She's a freak. <laughs> <laughs> 
But as we find through the flashback to them as their their their, their school days, you know, she was once a you know happy, vibrant studio uh, student, and she was in an old girl school, and they were putting on a production of Romeo and Juliet, and it was here that she sort of had those uh, early stages of uh, learning about herself and realizing that she was a a lesbian as uh, she began a romance with another student called Iko and Iko was cast as uh, as Romeo in this this play and for whatever reason the play got cancelled and these girls decided that you know because it being a tragedy let's have our own tragedy by taking <laughs> Taking, uh, was it cough medicine? Well, no, or? hang on, hang on. So what ha- a tragedy does happen, doesn't it? Romeo, the girl, Eco, is it her name? She gets killed in a road accident. Yes. Um, the day after that she's, well, she said given the other girl, uh, Masuko, the first kiss, although, frankly, it's a peck on the cheek. <laughs> there's a There's a really... There's a really weird line, a uh, really weird sort of dichotomy here that, that that's her first kiss. Um, but yet, quite often the girls are just running around the school in their bra and panties. There's a, there's some quite weird stuff here. So Romeo, the dub calls her Romeo for the rest of the film. I don't know if the if the, if, yeah. if the um, subtitles do. So she dies. All the girls are really upset, including including our two girls that we get to know later in life. And they, they decide to steal a sleeping potion from the chemistry lab like that's a thing and they all stand up on top of um of the edge of the school oh yeah because they've gone all mopey and they basically spend their playtime um on on duvets in the disabled parking area of the school playground i don't know this is mad um and they all line up about five of them line up and they're going to kill themselves and the way they're going to kill themselves is, oh, if we're meant to be with Romeo, when we fall asleep, we'll just fall forwards and we'll die. And um, three of them die. One of them falls on top of a car and survives, who is um, Taiko. And Mitsuko just stands there looking at them, going, oh, no, I didn't fall over. Um, so this this tragedy of the death of this girl, her first love, is what's made her become a, a, a shut-in. And... Taiko obviously hasn't given a shit about it for a long time, but when these boys turn up looking for someone to get um, their mate to get laid with, um, she says, "Oh yeah, let's go and reattach ourselves to this poor girl again." <laughs> and there's and and then you know then more history between the two girls becomes clear later on. Yeah. So we said already that you said already this is like the Sionsono greatest hits record. So already we've had you know. The synchronized suicide, so that suicide yep. club. We've got um, young student filmmakers filming unlikely subjects, which is obviously why don't you play in hell? And um, so those are our first nods at the minute. The highlights. I think it's probably best if we highlight stuff as we go because this is if this plot's sounding confusing already. Yeah, we've literally got it. twenty minutes into the film. <laughs> so. I did, you, if you want to see our production office right now, it's just a whiteboards and we've got words written down. And there's, and like, like, there's like drawing pins and bits of string pointing to here, there and everywhere. Because the start, the, start, the start of the film does love a flashback. So we go back often to 1985, which is when they were at school. And then there's some other flashbacks to other time periods as well. And it seems to be a shortcut of giving characters 
personalities by just telling, oh, wait, the reason they're like this is because that happened. Rather than show you what they're like yeah. now, we'll just show you what they used to be like, and then you can see why they're going to go a bit nuts. There's the classic ones, the mother, who in the flashback is a controlling sort of soccer mom type. But by the day the modern days come about, she's become quite subservient and nice to um, to her daughter. Um, oh, it turns out that's because the dad had an affair. But really, nothing, that just comes out of nowhere. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> okay, so now we've established our little core group here. We throw into the mix um, the mysterious con man called Joe, Joe Murata, who he contacts Misuku claiming to have lent her 50 yen when she was in high school. Um, Mitsuko, against her better judgment, decides that she's going to meet this mystery man and the two embark on a relationship. And it's basically while the uh, the group follow uh, Mitsuko around, they, they recognise that uh, Murata is this, obviously this, this con man. And I have to say that even though he's a con man, he apparently has the magical ability to have any career that he suddenly wants. As he is introduced as a businessman and then mysteriously becomes a pop star. Well, he's a, he's a, he's a Harvard graduate, a CIA operative, and a, a, a very popular singer-songwriter and performer. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently so. As And this is, again, this is where we have problems with the film, is that we have this captain's juice, like, one minute, and he's like, oh, he's a businessman. And the next thing, he's suddenly like... This world-renowned pop star. Although, oh, only women and... that he seduced seem to go and watch him. <laughs> <laughs> Which, in turn, leads to one of my favorite moments of the film, as you have this riot breakout amongst <coughs> his fans, who are just suddenly all arguing amongst themselves as to who he actually likes. Yeah, Mr. Murata. Um, but what we do have to say is, so he's played by um, Kipai Shiena, and he is flipping brilliant. <laughs> For me, I don't know what film he thought he was in, but he's in some kind of wacky comedy, right? <laughs> for for eighty five percent of the time, he's in a wacky comedy. He turns a bit later, but um, he's full of charisma, and 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 some of it's the character, and some of it's the way he's lit and shot and stuff he wears, and just the way he is. But he is fantastic. He's worth the price of admission alone. So. But the group now deciding they're going to make a film about Murata. And they're going to expose him. But here's the uh, twist as he finds out about the film and openly admits to being a con man. And in turn decides that he's going to take control of the film's production. So now has he not become a businessman but a CIA agent, a pop star. And now he's a Manson-esque cult leader. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, who, who with, with a, with a sideline <laughs> in BDSM. <laughs> so... We now have him who taking over the group and le taking control of him scripting this film that they're making, which at this point he's just spiralling off the rails, nothing's making sense, and we're sort of into full-on man-bites-dog territory as the group are becoming more and more involved in his crimes, to the point where he even starts staging murders of the group members he doesn't like uh, under the guise of them doing film as one other group members get strangled uh, by Mitsuko, who thinks that she's acting out a scene, but uh, she's actually really kills him. And we now move into the codfish nod, as we find a very unique way of how to dispose of a body. 
made very useful, made very, very possible by the uh, the way Japanese baths are made in these great big wet rooms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but saying that, it's an absolute mess they make <laughs> for all this care and consideration they're supposed to be taking. It's like there's just carnage everywhere by the time it, um, they finish. I mean, it, uh, this isn't long after we've had... Um, We've had the whole uh, Mr. Murata as pop star stuff, and it's all a bit light and comic, and then suddenly it gets dark really, really quickly. The sun sets on this movie pretty quick. Uh, about an hour in, suddenly you're watching people saw up bodies and put the bits into liquidizers and boil down the bones and then turn the bones into meatballs or something to throw into the sea and the rest of it's flushed down the loo and it's pretty pretty grim and so grim he does it again an hour later it's just (laughs) it's it's weird totally bizarre and incredibly graphic for Netflix we say that though but then we cast our minds back to The Night Comes for Us which I remember saying saying to yourself and certainly on the review is that it's a film that's so violent that there was moments I had to like sort of stop it and go away because it just became so overwhelming, the violence level in that movie. And certainly, while this film has its violent moments, it doesn't seem to go to the same. But I think with Netflix, they're counted in the sort of mindset of, well, let's just keep seeing how far we can push things. And you look at these projects where they brought in like named directors, like when you look at David Finch, who's obviously doing uh, Mindhunter and uh, more recently Love, Death and Robots, and how these things are just constantly pushing it and just seeing, well, what else can we do here? Because you have to remember, they're not a platform that's governed like TV, where it requires advertisers and sponsorship, and it has to like obey by these rules. They're their own their own brand so if they want to put out this weird murder movie then they can do no this, but so. it I, mean, I, I think my point this is this is much further than i've seen us i've seen sona have um subject matter and that's not as dark as this before but i don't think we've ever said i mean this is this is full-on 18 certificate stuff um that we haven't even got into the torture <laughs> I mean, Zoe's gonna fucking love it. <laughs> I really, yeah, we should throw it over. I mean, obviously Zoe over at Zobo with shotgun uh, and the unrated cut. I mean, she obviously she's well renowned for her love of dark cinema. So I'm, I'm very interested to see what she makes of this one. So we will, we have to shoot it out to her and say, you know, we've got a film for you, my friend. And. I think at this point, though, the film really starts to become a bit of a chore, and it, it in my mind, it became stupid, mm. and it just became more sort of tedious as it went on. As the group returned to the city, and we've obviously got uh, Mitsuku's parents who suddenly get brought into this court as well, and they're dressed up in punk gear, and it's. And also at this point, we also lose one of my favorite characters from the film, and it's sort of like. I just, I was just pretty much done with it. It felt like we had a point where where we could have ended this, and now we're sort of like, now it's just sort of like playing on it. And I know that over on uh, over on uh, RogerEbert dot com, when they talked about this film, is it was like saying, "Oh, Sion Son of fans will probably think that it ends too soon." And I'm thinking, I'm a Sion Son of fan, and this is not ending soon. I, th- I think, I think so. the, the the first dismemberment happens about an hour and a half into the film. And if you tied yeah. it up within 
20 minutes because I think that's you know that 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 surely is as far as someone can go <laughs> um but you're absolutely right the the whole stuff going back to Tokyo the 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 whole everyone dressing up as punks and shouting and screaming around and another person <laughs> dies and more bodies get chopped up except one doesn't but then it's going to be again and it's just repeating itself and not adding very much to it and then when we do finally get to that end sequence in i suppose the forest of love <laughs> i guess <laughs> i guess that i guess that's the forest um it feels really rubbish <laughs> it feels like a sixth former's way of ending a story um it does it's it's a very angel delight sort of ending it's a lot of froth and then just blop. oh here you go <laughs> i'm now going to explain if you think about this movie that you didn't know about me before but i show no hints of up to now i'm it, it's so there's a couple of sort of there's a couple of twists that that, that one of the characters is actually the serial killer that um, we thought Mr. Murata was, and another one isn't the person we thought they were all along. But does it actually result in anything? No. No, it feels very inconclusive, the ending. We get this huge info dump, and then it just feels like it just ends, and we get this little text about the fact that it was inspired by some uh, by real-life murders, and that the real people were caught in 2002 and sentenced to life imprisonment. Now, I did a quick Google search before we came on, and I could not find any sort of, like, examples of these cases where which the film's supposedly based on. No, I'm I'm and... assuming this is a Fargo-esque <laughs> conceit that says, um, yeah, if, if, if there really was um, a big serial killer in Japan, I think everyone would have known about it, right? <laughs> just... So... It's it's just a and it's a little frustrating the fact that they, it just ends and it doesn't feel like there's any comeuppance for the actions. It's just sort of like oh we're we're bored of watching these people now. Let's let's go see well what's on the other channel. That's what it very much it, felt it like. It did and, and and I think I think that's the problems. You know, I, I I talked about Murata. You know, we talked about Murata the con man and the and he's quite it's all full of life and da 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 da. da. But he is absolutely complicit. Isn't he? Freaking terrible things! <laughs> you know, he 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 abuses the two females. He abuses everybody else with, and he's a controlling. He's a cult leader. Um, yes, he might be a coward. He might not actually kill someone. He always seems to disappear and let everyone else do the dirty work. But he is, I don't know, like the Japanese Charles Manson, right? And he gets away scot free. So. He gets away scot free. Literally, runs off, doesn't get shot. And drives off and is about to restart his life again. Um, whereas everybody else has died. Or, bizarrely, been able to walk off with everything that they know. Like the other the guy, the guy, the <laughs> one of the original three, just goes off and isn't stopped or killed or anything like that. So he knows everything. There's all those people who were originally part of the film group that give up after ten minutes. Although they had completely been... Until they trash a bank, that's obviously a step too far for them. Um, yeah, I just found it very confused. I didn't know what the message was, and all I could see it was it was just saying, saying, "Hey, look, here's the sort of things that I get up to in my films. Come and see some others." Yeah, and it's not even. I mean, this is the thing. You would have thought that with like a Netflix production, that it would be like this entry point film, 
but it's really not. It's sort of like one really, in many ways, for the established already, the established fans. And I think when the hype's obviously died down, I think this is going to be sort of like one of those, you know, third tier movies of like the Sono filmography where, you know, you can watch it, but it's not as important as seeing something like Codefish or um, Why Don't You Play in Hell or Tokyo Tribe. Like one of those those mainstream ones, it'd be somewhere like uh, around like Suicide Club or Ext. Um, I would say it's sort of like, well, that was interesting, but what of it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's got, he's got, uh, he's got, there are, there are phases to his career. So, um, uh, Su- Suicide Club is, I guess, the breakout film um, with its sequel, Noriko's Dinner Table. And that's about, oh, a wacky cult leader who makes people do stuff they don't want to do. <laughs> um, uh, and then we have, well, we have Love Exposure, which I guess stands on its own. <laughs> but then we have That's the top tier. We have the sort of Coldfish, Guilty of Romance. Um can't think I think there's another film in that sort of the, the sort of quite dark dramas. Um and then we have things like Himazu and Land of Hope, which are inspired by some of the natural disasters and much more humanistic films. And then there was this massive year or so where he just made hundreds <laughs> of films and probably why he had a heart attack. Um which we're all over the place. Weird shit like Tokyo Tribe and uh, Virgin Psychics. Um, and then more than stuff like Shinjuku Swan, which was more of a yakuza type film. And then we had one of my favourites, which is The Whispering Star, which was this completely lo-fi sci-fi drama uh, filmed in sepia tone. Um, and I just thought, oh, and he's got really interesting and experimental. We talked about anti-porno a couple of yeah. episodes ago. Right, whether I like that or not, at least he was. I thought it was interesting in what he was trying to do. I didn't agree with the way I didn't agree with the message that he was trying to put out. The same I felt about Tag, but at least they were interesting and different films and had something to say, whether I agree with them or not. This just feels like I have no idea what this film was about, other than a cinematic CV. Of, of of the sort of things he's done, the comedy, the darkness, the the way that sometimes he all the troubling things about Sono, the way the the, the, the schoolgirls running around in their bra and panties, but also trying to say, oh, it's terrible that films do this, and then he's gone straight back and done it in a film, <laughs> you know, and and in and of itself that scene when they all start dancing and singing to some song to. Uh, uh, Pasha Bell's canon. Oh, that was that was clever. You know, it's it's clever and it's actually quite beautiful, but it's also horribly reductive and quite misogynistic in a way. <laughs> so so it, but it's complicated and that's that's fine. But then nothing else in the film is as clever as that, or as discussion worthy of that. Everything else is either that was funny or that was horrible. And God, it's gone on too long. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I I'm really mixed on it. I, I I like you. I think this would be thought of as a as a interesting experiment on Netflix's part. I don't see it's going to. I don't know if any other Sono films are on UK Netflix or on other Netflixes around the world. 
but I can't see many people going, oh, other films by this director? <laughs> yeah, it's... Um... <laughs> It's it's, it's 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 problematic. I mean, I would hope that you know people may see something in this, and they just still like go on, they go online and whatnot, and they see oh, see on someone's got quite quite this following, and then they get turned to his other films that way. And it um, the fact that it's on Netflix, like so many properties, it just because it's there. The same way that you know a, a wrestling show like Glow can be like their number one show. Uh, just because you know it's there, people are more willing to try something when they paid for it already. So, I'm hoping that the uh, the curiosity then. I mean, it's as I said, it's not a bad film in a whole. It's just a film that could have been better. And I think this is my biggest disappointment. And it, the fact it just runs thirty minutes too long, but it's indulgent. But, I think I think that's the word I would use. It's it's indulgent, and he's had a lot of money. He's had money to spend. There's a lot of fun to be had in it, especially in yeah. the first hour. Yeah, and, and there's some moments of, of beauty and there's a fantastic central performance, like I say, by Kipe. But on the whole, it's indulgent and too self-reflective. In, yeah, and to that extent, it reminds me a lot of Takashi Miike's Dead or Alive, which we, when we discussed it, is where you have these bursts of brilliance, but at the same time, they're bookended by pure tedium that it sort of ends up having this detrimental effect on the film. So I think there's just, there's other films which have done this sort of story b- before, and we mentioned I mentioned already, like Man Bites Dog, which is obviously a French film, and like a fake documentary uh, film about a group of documentary filmmakers following a serial killer as he does his thing, and how they get more sort of drawn into it. And I think that would be... If you want to see this film, but just sort of like done better, that would be like my go-to. Don't by any means watch the last horror movie, which is um, like a British attempt to do the same thing, and it's just awful. Uh, but yeah, I think it's it. I I do. I, it's hard to recommend it to say the least. It's uh, just know that it's not. You're not seeing a director working at his best. No, I I. I... I couldn't agree more. You know, the, the, there is good stuff in there, but there's much better places to go if you want to, if you want to check out this director. And I've got a feeling anyone who listens to this podcast will already be fully aware of this director. And we're not, we don't, we don't have to drive them uh, to that place. But we will direct you if you're in the notes section to check out uh, some of the other films <laughs> we have reviewed of his, such as X and Antiporno, so you can uh, obviously compare those. But um, Anything else you want to discuss about this one, still? I don't think so. I think I think I think just that that fundamental feeling of indulgence and disappointment. Although, but I don't feel I necessarily wasted my time because there is enough there in that in that one central performance and the odd scene or two. I mean, like the, the suicide scene's pretty well done as well. Um, you know, it is uh, it funny. probably <laughs> unintentionally but, but, <laughs> um, funny, definitely. But you know, this, this, yeah, I think, I think I'm saying the same words over again. So, no, um, no more from me, sir. Uh, further viewing, uh, what do you want to pair this with? I mean, this is a little bit of a difficult choice. I mean, obviously, my sort of go-to ones would just be to like check out the the original versions of the films that he's 
borrowing celebrity from his own filmography with this film, but uh, which we mentioned already, you know, things such as like, Why Don't You Play in Hell and Tokyo Tribe, Coldfish, um, Suicide Club, and those are all really good films to uh, definitely check out. But is there anything sort of outside the, the Sonoback catalogue that you would sort of pair it to? Well, I was thinking, I've, I've got one of Sonos and one something else. And the more I think about the something else, I don't know. Anyway, I'm going to pair them anyway. So the Sono film I'd actually show is that Sono can have a really long film <laughs> that's actually quite indulgent, but does have a... And, and has some weirdness and wackiness going along, but does have a point. And that's his um, 2008 comedy drama, Love Exposure. Which might sound like it's about a guy who goes around taking photographs of women's underwear in an upskirting thing, but it's actually about religion and family and all sorts of other things as well. And I am the poster boy for people who can't stand films longer than two hours. Um, pretty yep. certain this is four hours long, <laughs> trimmed down from six. And I watched it in one sitting and was not bored for a minute. Um, it's got quite a similar structure to it in the sense of of chapters and and flashbacks and things um but that is that's so not his best that is inventive but with a with something to aim at um which i don't think this did the other film um only because it's a sort of another sort of serial killery kind of film but a completely different one and it's the one that i watched for one of uh, one of my 31 nights of horror days of horror nights of horror <laughs> month of horror um was um, a film i may have talked about before which is kiyoshi kurosawa's cure which is a completely different sort of film but it is uh, it is also about a person who convinces other people to commit murder um kurosawa's film is much more naturalistic it's maybe even deliberately quite boring at times <laughs> it's it's uh, about urban Inui and it has a central performance by the the, the, the guy that's um, getting people to kill other people in this film he isn't a overly charismatic con man that can talk people into anything he's a guy who has no short-term memory and uses hypnotism through when he's talking to people to get them to commit murders in the most casual and and sometimes grotesque ways. Um, it has its elements of gore, but not too much. But it's a really uh, it's hard hard to explain without spoiling it. But it's a it's a really low key film, but a hundred times more affecting than the film we just watched. But has a similar, you know, similar conceit is is that the the, the serial killer isn't the one doing cool. the killings. Uh, the only for one I would throw out there would be Mary's a Murder from two thousand and three uh, about the nineteen eighty six search uh, for uh, South Korea's first serial killer uh, was two simple minded detectives uh, assigned to the double murder investigation. Um, I think it's uh, again it's just that uh, sort of tie in between you know true crime and and fiction. Um, and I think it's you probably may enjoy it more than, than this one, but uh, Memories of Murders one certainly worth checking out. Unfortunately, it came out sort of at that tail end of the boom period, so I think it was a little missed over by a lot of people, much like Public Enemies. So, um, 
Well, it's um, so the, it's directed by Bong Joon Ho, yep. who also did The Host, which was well, um, well received, and of course, uh, that film we often talk about, um, Snowpiercer. Um, it's a really fantastic drama. Um, that it's almost the the murders themselves are fairly unimportant. It's basically about the people who are investigating it. Um, fa- yeah, fantastic film and one that we really must approach directly. Also, let's not one forget Bong, soon. Uh, Bong Joon Ho was also another director given free reign by Netflix. He obviously did um, uh, Okja. Which I still have to watch, so he that did might be indeed, coming up yes. in a future episode. To get, yeah, not not that that that's not bad, um, and that's an example of a director who takes the Netflix money hmm. and does something different with uh, with, with the cash he's been given, and um, also I think he recently won the Palm Door, didn't yes. he? With, um, which is getting rave reviews all over the uh, the place at the moment, so. Hopefully, they'll get a release on one of the platforms soon. Absolutely. But yes, again, we, we were mentioning lots of films which are a lot better than the one we just watched. <laughs> okay, well, uh, that brings us to the end of another exciting edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club. Thank you, as always, for listening. And uh, if you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe buttons on whichever platform you happen to be listening to us, be it on Apple or Google or Spotify or CastBox. Wherever you happen to be hearing us, uh, please do uh, hit the like and subscribe buttons and leave us a review as it really helps raise the profile of the show. Uh, as well as those, you can uh, check us out on the social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter, which is AC Film Club. Uh, we're also on Instagram. And uh, currently at the moment, we are following our 31 days of Asian horror. So every day we're highlighting a different Asian horror movie. You can also check out our full archive, which is acinemafilmclub.wordpress.com. Uh, and on there you can uh, check out not only our reviews and uh, archive uh, episodes, but also our mixtape and other fun things as well. Stephen, it's Halloween for our next episode, and we've picked something out rather than doing our usual vote. And do you want to tell the people what we're going to be looking at? I do. Um, so I think this is a film that's been up on the list for previous um when we've put it up for yep. the vote, I think it's also one of your cinema shames. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and it's a film which I absolutely adore, um, and I'm really, really hoping that you like it. <laughs> so what it, it's Kim Ji Woon's um, 2003 A Tale of Two Sisters, um, sort of a psychological thriller with horror overtones, that I'm hoping you're going to enjoy on both a story and a visual level, starring a couple of um, 2003's terms, which is, I'm guessing, quite a long time ago now, <laughs> to, 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 to the, to the hopeful big stars, big female stars to be. Um, maybe we'll, I'll have a look and see how that turned out for either of them. Um, based on a, it's based on a Korean fairy tale. Um, been filmed before, but uh, the fantastic um, Kim Ji Woon put his own twist on it, and I'm hoping you're going to enjoy it, Elwood. Hopefully so. Signs all pointing to uh, positive at the moment, though. So that will be our next episode, and uh, we'll be having that in, out in time for Halloween. Uh, but thank you as always for listening, and thank you to my co host, Stephen. Pleasure as always. And uh, we'll be back next time to talk about A Tale of Two Sisters. Good night. Thank you.